Welcome back, everyone, to the OGs. Dom Povia joined by Kyle Bunch, co-host. And we have a different type of guest this week. And I say that because we spent the last 21 episodes now, Kyle. 21, I think it is. Yeah, this is oh, this is 21, maybe, right? Was the last one 20? I, I, I don't know. Right around there. Blackjack. Um, but we spoke with the, the Blogs with Balls crew, right? The uh, folks that we spent uh, countless numbers of, uh, of conferences and drinks and cities with. Uh, from 2009 to about 2017, and then 2019, we made the switch over to the OGs, and we had a, you know, a, a nice little event in New York, and we had some big plans to roll some things out throughout the year, and then 2020 happened, and none of that actually happened. But we're bringing in a guest from the 2019 iteration of BWB, if you will. So welcome, with her Joe Hawk, rocking it, Joanna Loman. Welcome to the show. Yeah, no, I'm so proud to be back on the show, and of course, have to rock the Joe Hawk even early in the morning. Kyle, I was teasing her that um, I about a year ago I had the mohawk going on, and my kids kind of put the kibosh on the return of the. <laughs> the I, I the too was going through through pictures of of where I uh, my my I got finally good at keeping it even, but there was a long stretch that it sort of like trailed over here a bit, and uh, so yeah. wait, you guys both had mohawks at one point. It, well, I, you know, that early days pandemic, like there was a run on like wall clippers. Like it was literally like I got the last pair from CVS. It was this feeling yep. like I may not get a haircut for months if I don't do it myself. Exactly. And, you know, so it was a tough choice between the, the clippers and the floby. But uh, so, you know, we, we went mohawk. And well, you got, you got that float. You, you got the little, like floby. montage of the three our three mohawks and see who who wore it best. I, I'm pretty sure uh, I'm going to be the loser on that one. <laughs> I think Joe, you got you got the expertise on us. So uh, right. you, do you do it yourself? Do you have your own wall set or your Con Air clippers or something? No, I definitely have to go to a barber for this. Um, my hair is my brand, so I have to be very particular with who gets to cut it. And uh, I have a barber that I've been seeing for the past five years who I first met when I came back to D.C. and really is the creator, I would say, and the owner of the Joe Hawks. So I, I keep going back to him. Nice. Well, speaking of your brand, we see we see the book up there. We see the picture of the wife, the dog. I got the book here too, Raising Tomorrow's Champions. Um, we usually we we do an intro. I haven't even said who you are or what you do because I actually want to leave that to you because I feel like you've done quite a bit. You've pivoted certainly since your retirement, and I guess the question is one: What have you done? But really, what do you want to be known for? No, it's such a good question. I feel like. You know, since I retired in 2019, it was amazing. I became the first player in Washington Spirit history to have her jersey retired. And what was so incredible about that, I would say, like award is that I never won any trophies. I never was an MVP. I never really was an all-star in my 16-year career. It was really a lot of zigzagging, a lot of up and downs, injuries, sitting on the bench. So I just felt like retiring was an, a great culmination of that journey and credit to the spirit for wanting to the re retire the jersey of a player who really stood for social justice and you know had that up and down career. So I retired in 2019 and then in 2020 obviously the pandemic hit and I really wanted an avenue to share all of my experiences in the game because I felt like I had I would say a handful of like truly unique identity shaping moments through sport. Um, Don, we talked about it, you know, coming out at the age of 21 when I was engaged to a man is just one of them. And then I wanted to uplift the voices of what I think is, you know, the most socially significant team on the planet, the U S women's national team. 
And their 35-year history has just been a testament for bold and badass women standing up for what they believe. And the 2019 version, when they won the World Cup in France, was just you know jaw-dropping to watch the way that they won it, tweeting back at President Trump. Um, you got Megan Rapino, Ali Krieger, Ashlyn Harris, Crystal Dunn, Jess McDonald. You know, like the names just go on. And the the impact they've had on female athletics, but also I would say society as a whole has just been awe-inspiring. And so this book really, it's a tribute to the national team players dating back to 1985 and using those as life lessons to help parents really raise healthy, bold, badass young kids. Yeah, one thing, Joanne, as you talk about this, that that you know struck me when you know in the I think the ESPYS were like three or four days after after the women brought home the trophy, and there was that great moment of like they're all on stage, they are in that moment truly the biggest badasses in the room, right? And the thing that struck me, especially with Megan Rapinoe, was that sort of you know I think for so long it's felt to me at least like female athletes, there was this expectation to be sort of simultaneously demure, be, go win, but then, you know, you're not supposed to be as brash as the men. And there was this moment that was like, she's up there with more swagger than LeBron and the rest of the guys in the room combined. Have you, am I, is that, is that feel accurate from, from your perspective? And, and do you see that, you know, playing out and where that might go? Is that part of, you know, kind of the empowering that you keep talking about the badasses of the future? I think that's incredibly accurate. I think you saw in the 2019 World Cup, the criticism that the women's national team faced, first of all, for scoring 13 goals against Thailand, right? They were told they were scored. They scored too many goals. That wasn't a kind thing to do as athletes. Uh, the, the tea sipping by Alex Morgan when she raised her pinky finger. Uh, and then I don't know if you guys remember, but when they celebrated winning, they had alcohol in the locker room like any men's team would. And again, they were criticized for that. So women get it from all angles. It's, you have to toe this line that is absolutely ridiculous of, you know, be quiet, be the role model. And that's changing. I think the women's national team is showing us that being a role model is being your authentic self. And that's be, having dreadlocks. It's, you know, wearing a suit as a woman. It's tweeting back at President Trump. It's standing up for social justice and for your teammates of, that are black and brown, right? It's, it's all encompassing. And I think that's what young women need to see, because I feel like as a young woman in the United States, you feel so boxed in, right? In terms of who you can be, what you can say. And I think the women's national team is such an incredible example that you can be your authentic self and still be a, a effing rock star, right? And people will respect you. They will adore you and you will shape culture more than, than anyone else because of that authenticity. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's interesting. Something we alluded to, um, I think before we hopped on the air was just that you really came up in, I think the, I don't want to say the splashiness of women's soccer, but really it was, it was when it really became, I think, you know, household names, right. The, the Mia hams and, and those types that, uh, happened coming out of the late nineties into the two thousands. And that was like really your, your wheelhouse, um, has the, social impact and the voices that these women today have, um, have they sort of stabilized the sport as a whole? If I'm looking at your resume, you, you were everywhere, right? There was no really like stabilizing league team force that was there. There's a lot of stuff coming in and out. So, um, you know, what we'd like to talk about sort of is the evolution over the past decade. Um, yeah. You know, has the things that are happening today really helped galvanize the sport and the athletes? 
I think we've seen an incredible evolution of the team. Um, you know, 1999, you just brought up, was kind of the iconic moment of when Brittany Chastain ripped off her shirt, the Nike sports bra, she's flexing her muscles. That was when women's soccer, I would say, hit the main stage. But having done a ton of research, you know, for this book and interviewed players all the way back until 1985, I know that the 99ers still felt very restrictive in terms of how they could express their brand. The 99ers were, were famous and popular because they were the girl next door, right? That means they were white, they had ponytails, they were straight. So any player who didn't fit that mold, I think felt really out of place and felt you know quite suffocated. Um, just to bring up an example, we interviewed Brian Oscuri, who made the winning save in the 99 She's the one that came to my mind that didn't really yeah. fit that mold, yeah. Yeah, she said she felt like a black fly in white milk. And, and that we say that in our book. And that's because she didn't feel safe, you know, to be a black woman on that team. She wasn't marketed. And I think when you saw Hope Solo come along and saw all the attention that she got, Brianna Scurry had to take a step back and thought to herself, wow, race did come into play in terms of my marketing capability. So in terms of the evolution of the team, I think you see them now feeling, I would say, more accepted and allowed to be their true selves. And that has come you know, at a cost, like you said, Don, like I, the 99ers established the first league in the United States, but there was two failed leagues until the league now. So we've been on quite a roller coaster ride in women's soccer in this country, because as always, people believed women's sports, people don't watch it, people don't care. And look where we are now. You have Alex Ovechkin, you know, uh, investing in the Washington spirit. You have Chelsea Clinton, you have Jenna Bush, you have people from all over the country, the LAF, the Angels FC team is owned by just a group of badass women. So I think you see this true evolution of, we see the potential, we want to invest in women's sports and they are incredible athletes and they're willing to really be their human selves, which is what the world needs and wants now. Are we able to, you know, I always like to use the word scalability, right? So you mentioned Megan Rapino. So, you know, Megan got out there, did her thing, widely embraced for it. I see her on Subway commercials now. We actually, Kyle, I think you were with us when we met her at South by a couple of years ago before, you know, before she really took off and just, you know, one of the kindest people. But, you know, so she has the, you know, she has those uh, Subway commercials. I saw, I got a thing sent to me yesterday about um, Brianna Stewart, um, WNBA, signing a Puma deal. Um how do we scale this and how do we expand this beyond that? One thing I, I was talking to somebody who was involved with the women's soccer players association, uh, probably about a year or two ago and said that the women's national team makes out really well, right? Those top 30 people that are in that national program work well, but then those, you know, people that are just sustaining a regular league all the time don't necessarily see the benefits that the national team is getting. How do we, how are we able to take care of these professionals from like top to bottom or is there a way yet? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there there is a way. And with these new investors, um, you see a lot more money being pumped into the women's game. And that's what you need. You need a, like a strong foundation, financial foundation for this league to survive. Because if you can't pay the players what they deserve and to make a living you know, out of playing their sport, it's really difficult for them to stay in market, meaning that once my season's over, I need to go back to wherever I'm from to coach, to work. If you can get a living wage for these players, they can stay in market, meaning that they can find opportunities within the community, the local sponsors to get involved. 
And you're talking about women who are have college degrees, who are incredibly intelligent, who would be a huge asset to any like local company within that market. And I think you know that's one way to frame it is holistically looking at these these women and these players as whole human beings and how much they can offer the world uh, with their intelligence, with their athleticism and their skill. And two, I think you have so many people who look up to the athletes in their community, um, women athletes, especially because I would say they're fewer and far between. And the women's national team is a perfect example of that is that young girls just, they adore them and really want to, they aspire to be like them. So there's just, there's so many opportunities, I think, coaching appearances, speaking opportunities within the local market that you can really use these players um, and all of their skill sets to, I would say, uplift the entire community. I'm like smacking myself in the head. That just seems like, oh, duh. No kidding, right? If they can build some roots in a particular place, build their brand, you know, throw a buzzword around. Yeah. Um why not? But also have that foundation of the investment of a sustainable wage to be able to grow upon that, not just rely on that solely. Sorry, Kyle. No, 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 no. I, you know, it, it strikes me something we were, we were discussing before we went on the air, which is, you know, we were talking about more in the college NIL sense and helping those amateur athletes start early in building their own brands as well. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that maybe makes me hopeful of, you know, yeah, okay. If you're the U.S. Women's National Team, if you're one of the stars in the WNBA, the the spotlight's getting brighter. Um, but we're seeing, you know, certainly seeing it on the women's side, tons of it on the men's side. You've got people who are coming, the next generation coming up, really savvy about how to build those audiences directly as well. And like on the men's side, that's that's most of what's propelling growth right now. It's not oh the like look at NBA ratings. It's but then look at players and the the you know I mean LeBron again at the top, but even these middle tier players who come you know come into the league with a million followers, you know, and yeah. so uh, that I don't know. I feel like that's uh, you know again in that sort of that vein of what we were talking about before of you know is one of the unlocks that combination of women being able to be themselves more, being able to be badasses and building those direct relationships, ideally in market physically, but even just remotely where suddenly the sponsor dollars and things, it's not all on the league itself to create that opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, I love that concept and for better or for worse, I feel, I feel as if female athletes are more accessible, right? There's not as many barriers to them, especially when I played, you would be signing autographs directly with the fans after the game. You know, you would be coaching a fan's daughter the next day. It's just those barriers don't exist as much. And so I really do. There are a lot of avenues to explore of building those relationships locally. And, and really it's mutually beneficial for all parties involved. How do you feel like, you know, thinking about that and thinking about that sort of pipeline and how that next generation's coming up. And I, I, it, again, and sort of as an outsider with a daughter, it seems as though at the youth level, the the women's game, the girls game is is strong, is is doing really well. Is that accurate from from what you see in being involved in the communities and stuff? Is that are we really getting that place where it is building at the grassroots level all the way up this sort of foundation? Yeah. I would say yes and no. I think you know one of the reasons why we wrote this book is because I think there's an an overemphasis on being an elite athlete. Now it's, we've kind of lost sight of what the benefit of sport is from the ground level. And I think you see a lot of players quitting before the age of 13, because they don't feel like they're good enough, or they don't feel like they're going to make, make the elite team. And 
there's this constant pressure <laughs> on kids to be a certain skill level. And it, I think it can be really suffocating and it can be absolutely demoralizing for these kids. So that's one of the reasons why we wrote Raising Tomorrow's Champions is to encourage parents and players to kind of take a deep breath and just realize that the benefit of sport is playing at any level. You don't have to get a college scholarship and you know what? You don't have to, you don't have to go pro and the odds of that are like winning the lottery. So good <laughs> luck. Right. So, you know, let's not put the end result as the ultimate goal. Let's put the process of just playing, being a part of a team as something that's incredibly beneficial. But I think we're kind of losing sight of that a little bit now. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I had a very, we had a very personal kind of feel of that. And my daughter, you know, played in the sort of youth Y leagues at five years old, where it's, you know, very, you know, boys and girls playing together, the whole thing. And yeah, had a first year that was rough. You know, she was, she was kind of figuring out coordination and kind of getting out there. Second year, you know, starting to score some goals, had two friends on the team. It was really, you're like, oh, and the two friends were pretty good, you know, had older brothers. And then by the end of the, you know, season ends, those two girls go join the local club teams. You know, one of the, one of the girls was younger than my daughter. She was like five years old. And suddenly my daughter's choice was like, well, go play with a bunch of kids. I don't know. Yeah. In elite, in, in at the Y where as you start to have that exodus, it's the same thing with private schools, right? The parents who have the means to be very hands-on, if they start taking all their kids over here, well, now all of a sudden you've got, you know, this sort of loosely organized people that aren't as invested in it, you know? And so, yeah, so I, we've experienced that firsthand and I, I, I'm hopeful that we can get away from it. Cause it, and then, and then not to mention the fact that the kids who are, being subjected to it. I mean, we see it, right? Like ACL tears on yeah, the rise because you've got exactly. coaches that aren't mindful of it. Um, I was fascinated to even learn, you know, uh, we've worked with some startups that, you know, understanding the differences with, with female and male athletes and that there are, you know, as you train a female athlete, like, you know, dealing with her cycle where she could be more susceptible to soft tissue injuries during certain exactly. points, you know, and so anyways, I'm going on and on, but I, Kyle, I got a, I got a good one for you. I, I was coaching and I sponsored the team. It's funny. They, they loop you in. Hey, uh, we need some coaches. You want to coach? Sure. Hey, you own a business. We, uh, we need some sponsors. You want a sponsor and end up doing everything. So it's like the four to six year old T-ball team, softball team, right? The girls second or third practice, the, the league official comes to me and asks me if I've identified any, but that might be good candidates for like their travel program, like yeah. in the future. And I'm like, they don't even know their left from their right. Like that is where I'm at right now is teaching them their left hand from their right hand. And you're asking me if they're travel worthy yet. Like, give me a break. Like where are your priorities as, you know, as an administrator slash coach. And how Parent. do you change this, Joanna? I mean, you know, how do you, how do you yeah. break through that? You know, I'm still feeling this conversation because, you know, one, there's a financial barrier. Once you start playing travel, once you start going to the clubs, it's, it gets really expensive. So you leave out all low-income families, right? You There's a barrier to playing sport. And two, it's not healthy. It's not healthy mentally. It's not healthy physically, okay? Because if you specialize before the, you know, age of high school, you are much more prone to getting injured. I don't know if you guys ever read David Epstein. He has a great new book out called Range. And, you know, he talks about the only stories we hear are the Tiger Woods, the Serena Williams, the specialization stories. But those those are incredibly unique. We don't hear about, you know, Roger Federer, who played multiple sports growing up. If you read our book, national team players, most of them played multiple sports until high school. They played with boys and it's, they played because it's fun. You know, they didn't have these over-invested parents who step in at every turn 
and yell at the referees. And so I think the road we're going down just isn't the right one. So, but it's, it's hard because these are the messages that parents and people are hearing all the time. Get your kid involved in travel soccer at the age of five, which is ridiculous, right? And pay big monies and like so much money for leagues and coaches. So it's a great question. Like, how do we dismantle this? And originally I thought COVID might've done, you know, a benefit for sport because first of all, people missed it for it's, you know, the pure concept of sport of just playing, participating, being part of a team. And two, like financially, like the country was hit hard. So, you know, maybe the clubs, maybe the parents won't have the financial means to consistently pay for these big travel clubs. Um, you know, I'm, I've yet to see if this has really worked out, but you have a lot of organizations in, in the country that are trying to create organizations and programs of just getting kids out and playing for the fun of it, right? Like taking away the whole elite status. But you know what? You're still going to see it. There's still going to be so many stories of it. So I think it's going to be kind of like a push-pull type of relationship that it's going forward. And I don't know if there's a great answer for that. Yeah, you know, you see some of the momentum building. I remember the New York Times a couple of years ago got into the Norway model where they're pretty like yeah. religiously like, no, until 12, you are not yeah. allowed to specialize, which is, you know, feels at times like where you may need to have parts of the country that go to that. And we test and see, you know, the a state like Massachusetts, would they would go to something like that because they're the ones that sometimes take the lead on these things. One thing that strikes me, I mean, is one of the other challenge added challenges in this the sort of double-edged sword of the the elevation of the women's game as you get more female superstars it becomes that much more aspirational the the willingness to invest if the upside is bigger is it it seems like it's got that draw that pull is going to constantly be there that tension yeah i'm so glad you brought that up because my co-author um paul tukey on this book he's a soccer dad his daughter was 10 years old at the time of writing this and she was a big inspiration for writing this book because she, since she came out of the womb, basically wanted to make the national team. And Paul, as a father, first of all, thought, you know, is this realistic? Is this healthy? And how would I help my daughter in a way to to help her get there, but also just focus on the journey itself, right? Because he understands the odds of making the women's national team is like winning the lottery. Uh, In the 35-year history, there's been 242 players who have at least one cap with the national team. So you know, the odds are so, so slim, especially if you have more women playing. So how do we really encourage these big dreams, but at the same time, keep our feet on the ground and have some perspective that it's just a game, right? So I think, you know, our book, Raising Tomorrow's Champions, tries to encourage parents that if your child loves the game and you do it in a healthy way, the end goal will happen, right? The end goal will happen if all the smaller steps are done properly. And I think it's the smaller steps that we kind of lose sight on that. If your child's injured, you know, have them sit out, you know, don't have them play through injury. It's important to take breaks over the year. You don't want to play the same sport 12 months out of the year. And while you have these national team players who are absolute rock stars, just keep in mind that they are 0.00001% of the population. And the main thing is that you're, you know, really raising a healthy young adult, which in this day and age can be really, really hard. So keep that as the number one goal and everything else can, will happen down the line if it's really meant to happen. I want to shift gears a little bit um, to, you know, you're talking to two straight guys here, um, <laughs> white guys to boot. Um, 
you know, talking about uh, these issues that we're talking about, uh, whether it's uh, uh, gender identity or, um, you know, sport, um, what is the role that you see of, of allies? So as, as men, right, uh, how proactive or, or vocal should we be? You know, Paul's a great example, right? Your, your, yeah. your, your co-author. Um, and, and then even for things like LGBTQ issues, um, you know, how, how much on the forefront do you as, you know, a woman athlete, LGBTQ um, need or want guys like us? Like what is, what is really our role uh, in all these things that we're talking about? You know, I think you guys can play a major role. I think, allies are extremely important for, I think for any social justice movement, uh, you need, you need people, the majority really to, to buy into this. I think originally, you know, for women's sports, we wanted to do it all ourselves, right? We want, after the 99 women's world cup, we wanted to kind of blaze our own trail. And it's hard to do that without the help of, um, you know, every person that you can. I think now we understand that, social justice movements involve um, every human and they need to involve every human. And if you're not advocating for your teammates who have, you know, a different race, a different orientation, you know, a different um, gender, then you're not doing enough. And I think sports has shown us that when you're able to be your true authentic self, you're a better athlete. So from a team perspective, if you want to perform well as a team, you have to have every individual feeling safe and welcomed to be themselves. And I don't think that will happen unless we all advocate for each other. Um, and I think we see the waves and the ripple effect of what can happen when we do support our teammates who are different to us, because you really uplift an entire generation of of people and you see true change happen, you know, in this current election with the WNBA, the U S women's national team, like we've seen a comp a huge shift because of the work that these women have put in. And so I think allyship is just absolutely essential. Is there, um, in terms of like vocalizing it, I'll just give you a couple scenarios, right? So I remember when all the BLM stuff really started percolating, uh, when the protests started happening. I mean, the first thing that I did wasn't, you know, go post something on my social media. I called up my African-American clients, male, female, rich, not so rich, and, and just said, listened, right? What's going on? What can I do to help? Right. Kind of asked them instead of really getting out front. Um, you know, on the flip side, is there a pressure, as you just articulated, right? Every, everyone needs to kind of pull for everyone. You know, is there a pressure on people that might not be that, uh, that vocal or outspoken, um, you know, to, that they need to take a stand one way or another? Is that, is that a reality? Is that fair? You know, I think there's a lot of ways that like, quote unquote, you can take a stand. I think having these conversations and opening up a discussion uh, for your teammates to really feel safe to, um, express themselves as a way of taking a stand. I don't think everything has to be done on social media. Some people just aren't comfortable on social media, but I think if, if you go personally um, to your teammates, um, you know, any teammate of color and, you know, let them know that like you're there for them. Um, you're a part of this movement. I think that can make a huge difference. I think everybody has a platform to impact, whether that's, a platform where you have, you know, 3 million followers or one follower, I still think you can make a significant difference 
um, in social justice. And it's just by existing and living authentically and really um, wanting to listen and understand people who are different from you. I question I have, as you kind of kept hitting on safe spaces, it, it, and maybe what we've heard from other guests wouldn't safe spaces may not necessarily be exactly the way they were framing it, but we we've had some conversations with you know some of the women that have have spoken at our events. Uh, Sid Ziegler, who's you know gay male, yeah. who came in yeah. you know without sports introduced introduced us to Joanna. That's yeah, how we, yeah. So, that's how yeah. We so yeah, so we <laughs> and and we've you know we heard. I think, you know, this sort of, hey, it was, it's been, it was great what you guys were doing with Blogs with Balls and the outside game, you know, at times maybe didn't feel, while nobody was not welcoming, it didn't necessarily have that feeling of like, we're all, it, it felt like a white dude place that's tolerating the fact yeah. that other people are there, but not really making them welcome. And I guess what I'm getting at is, is there a role within even just the the men's side of sports and not looking at this as there's men's sports and women's sports, but how can men support the women's game? How can women feel comfortable or feel more welcomed in as fans to the men's game and creating that, you know, that sort of, it, yeah. What, what, how do you feel like that plays into this, the sort of creating a more inclusive overall sports community? Yeah, I think that's a, you know, great question. I was listening to Rebecca Lobo on ESPN News. They interviewed her yesterday and she was talking about the evolution of the WNBA. And the first, uh, she was talking about Kobe Bryant and LeBron James being at their games. You know, th little things like that. Having the men's players come to the women's game. I think that speaks volumes because as we talked about earlier, like going to women's sports originally, when I first started playing professionally, it wasn't necessarily a cool thing to do. And now if you see players like LeBron, um, you know, obviously Kobe back before he passed and Alex Ovechkin, we talked about, you know, investing in the spirit. If he comes to games, it's like, holy cow, like it's really cool to attend a women's game. It's cool to watch these athletes and respect them for their athletic prowess, you know, first and foremost. And it's cool to financially invest in women's sports. Um, and you're seeing that a lot as a company standpoint and also too, from an individual standpoint. So I think, you know, fill, fill the seats, right? Go to the games, watch the games on television. Okay. The biggest arguments we get is that no one watches women's sports. No one wants to attend women's sports. There's two things right there that you can easily do to help support, you know, talk about the women's game, cover the women's game, um, see them, you know, for their athletic selves, right. As who they are, write articles about them. It's just, the overall coverage and the overall language that we use in describing women's sports, I think will help really to build awareness and get people to realize that I can play a part in the growth of the women's game by just showing up. Mm -hmm. And and it, and it strikes me, you mentioned, you know, Rebecca Lobo. I also think of Candace Parker and this crossover that we're starting to see, you know, Jessica Mendoza, like, Hey, yeah. it, you know, female referee, all of this sort of like women can take part in the men's game. They're, they're athletes with that experience. They can comment on it. They can referee. Yeah. I, I feel like that I can't help but escape the thought that that's going to be critical as well, that we're not again, creating this sort of like there's women's sports over here. Men may support it. There's men's sports over here and women are welcome to show up and cheer if they want, but you know, yeah. like that's, they don't, they can't expertly speak on it. I, I well, hope yeah. psychologically that's helping drive that shift too. Absolutely. That crossover is massively important. And then you see, I think, teams, you know, market to, to women, have women's jerseys and things like that. They, you know, 50, I would say like 50, 52% of any sports fan group is women. And for so long, they weren't viewed as true sports fans when really they're at the stadiums, they're watching their games. They're just as passionate 
as their male counterparts and to be taken seriously and to see them in ads and to hear them as announcers and to see them on the sidelines, you start to really, I, I think, cross pollinate in terms of like, you know, women are just a, a bigger part of the sports journey as, as men and they deserve a voice and they deserve a seat at the table. Is it fair to the women athletes and the leagues to compare them to the men's leagues? Uh, like, isn't an apples to apples comparison? If we're comparing the NBA, which has been around, I don't know, but 80 years, like, I can't even tell you, you know, to the WNBA, is, is that a problem? Because if people are like, well, the, w, the NBA does this, the WNBA does that. But they've had, obviously had different levels of funding support. They've had different levels of just publicity of people knowing that this is an aspirational thing. So I don't know the answer. I'm not even sure how to phrase the question of, you know, I don't want to say they're not equal because maybe they are, but is it fair because one has been a billion dollar industry for, you know, decades? Yeah, I know. I think comparisons are natural. That's what we do all the time in life. But I, I do think it's apples and oranges. I think the women's game is naturally different than the men's game. We're, we're built differently. Um, athletically speaking, we're different. Um, and that's just genetics. So I think we can respect the women's game for what it is. And I think we can also appreciate the men's game for what it is, but I don't think anyone should attend a sporting match comparing the women to the men, because it's just, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's necessary. Right. And I think we'll all be better off if we can, if we can really appreciate both for what they bring to our lives and not pit them head to head. Yeah, I, you know what? What stri- has always struck me, as especially as it relates to the, the to women's soccer, um, although it's certainly true of WNBA as well, is you know, no offense to the MLS, but let's face it, it's not necessarily the best players in the world that are going to play here. The European side, where the NWSL already and continues down a road where. Yeah, you you know, so to me, it's the comparison for a for you know what you often hear around. I think especially soccer when it comes to America's, we're used to watching the best athletes and the way you do. You know, we're you know, it's not going to yeah. take. That strikes me as the if you're gonna compare, actually a critical advantage. You're going to see yeah. a lot of the best women in the world when you go to an NWSL match, and that's you're going to see you know some very good young players on the MLS side and some legends who are in the back part of their career. But um, I'm curious, you know, that's one of those others. I'm yeah. hopeful that like, as you get these U S women's national team wins and those celebrities come up and you recognize like, these are, yeah. we're, we're, this is our game. I mean, women's <laughs> soccer is America's thing. U S Hey, the U S yeah. men are very promising right now. You're seeing it move forward, but women are moving forward way faster than men here. And I, I you know, yeah. you hope that that American pride almost kicks in where you're like, Dude, we got the best product here. Let's, you know, go back it, you know? Yeah, that's a really great point. And I think women's soccer own soccer in America, right? We won four world cups and we've talked about this, but the players are rock stars, right? They're so well known, not just in our country, but globally. And the NWSL is the best players from the, you know, in the whole world that come to our league. It is uh, the most competitive. It has the most parity, I think, of any league in the world. And now you're starting to see expansion within the NWSL. They're bringing in yeah. two teams in 2022. So it's, it's an incredibly exciting sport in our country. And I think if anyone goes to a game, they're going to see how skilled these players are on the field. 
Yeah, and that expansion part's really critical. You know, you you look at some of these markets, and we're fortunate we've been able to do do some work with Angel City. So seeing all the things they're doing, but it's Los Angeles, like that. You know, it's just such a massive place that you you forget that the NWSL hasn't hasn't been there. You see the Gotham rebrand where there's clearly yeah. you know New York is kind of reinvesting, and that's going to become bigger. And then I know some of the other big markets, and and definitely I think if we've learned from the MS MLS, you have to reach that kind of critical mass soccer in particular is a, it's a great sport in person, you know, some of these other sports it's, yeah. you know, yeah, you, you can experience it not being there, but I, I think that it does feel like you're right. Like as you get into those markets, you get the women able to stay there and you get more people able to experience it firsthand. That feels like just that critical moment. That's really going to convert a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, just to give an example, last night I go on Twitter and the NWSL is trending and I'm like, what? Like, you know, this doesn't happen very frequently, but there's so much news coming out of the league, whether it's expansion, whether it's Seattle signing one of the best players in, in French history, um, Portland winning the Challenge Cup. Uh, it's, you know, Jill Ellis potentially becoming the director of the San Diego team, bringing over the, the coach from Man United. Like, it's just, it's incredible how much the league is growing. And I think having the, the teams having longevity and keeping the same players earlier on, you saw so much turnover. So it was hard for a fan to get invested into a, a player in their local team because that player would be gone the next day. But you're starting to see this longevity. You're starting to see this sustainability where you can really get invested in your local team. You can go to the games, you understand the players. It's like you get really passionate about it. And I think you're starting to see that now in the NWSL where you have these incredibly passionate fans you know, go to Portland for any game and you just, you know, your jaw drops because it's just such an incredible atmosphere. And I think that's what's going to happen around the country now with, like you talked about Gotham, DC, all these teams building these incredible fan bases and in their markets where it's going to be sustainable for, you know, for years and years to come. I feel like we can talk about sport and social issues forever with you, but I want to shift back a little bit and talk a little bit about Joanna. So it's, it's starting with markets and, and, and brands. Uh, how did you end up a Nittany lion and not a Terp? Let's start with that. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's always that saying it's a little too close to home. So, <laughs> having grown up in Silver Spring, which is about 20 minutes from the university of Maryland. I just felt like I wanted to uh, go a little further, but also to with like within driving distance and Penn state was an up and coming program and they gave me an attractive offer. I liked the coach. I liked the area. And so I ended up a, a Nittany Lion. No regrets? No regrets. No, no regrets. I love the program there. I will say that Penn State, it's so cold. Like, <laughs> and, you know, now I'm like, I prefer warmer weather. So um, I love the area. I love the school, but it was just cold. I remember going up there for a football camp too, and it was just nothing but like the campus. And then yeah. they had their own yeah. farms. So there was like cows and yeah. like, I'm like, oh, this is weird. This isn't Philadelphia anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You certainly, you certainly excelled there. Um, and, you know, speaking again of, of roots back home, I, I asked you in the beginning what you want to be kind of known for. And, and we have the author and we sp- certainly talked about the athlete, but did I see something you're into? commercial real estate or, or something in the area, right? You have, you have that going on. Uh, you did work with, uh, as, as a U.S. ambassador of sport uh, overseas. So let, let's get into some of this stuff that the opportunities of, of being who you are in the sport has opened these other doors for you. Um, you know, how did that come about and, and how have you embraced it? Yeah, it's been amazing. You know, the doors that sport has opened for me, like you said, Don, I think that 
on a lot of these state department trips. So I go as a sports diplomat, just using sport as a vehicle for social change in a lot of, um, a lot of countries where women's rights aren't as strong as the United States. And so the past four years pre COVID, I went to, um, sub-Saharan Africa. So I spent four years, um, taking trips to Africa and talk about perspective for being, you know, a female athlete in America and you know, going over there and using soccer and teaching it to girls who have never played before because they've never had the opportunity. And also to, uh, you know, educating them on whatever the local issue is. So for instance, my most recent trip to Nigeria, we were doing an education program on human trafficking, which is quite bad in that country. So, you know, sometimes I like pinch myself because I can't believe that I'm able to have these experiences um, through the game and to make the impact that I do because, for me, like that's the most important part of who I am is to really, I would say, make the path more comfortable for the person who comes behind me. Um, another reason why, you know, I wrote this book to share my own experiences is to really help that young athlete who may be struggling um, in any type of way. So it's just, it's incredible to be able to do those types of things. You know, now I'm an author. Um, I, also, I also just want to be thought as like a, a thought leader in terms of like the athlete mindset. Um, I'm going to start teaching a course coming, I think in July. Um, and also to like, you know, just mentorship, um, youth development, um, really trying to be kind of a guiding light for young athletes and parents as they try to navigate through the tough journey of, of youth sports and just kind of growing up. But, you know, back to the, uh, the ambassador thing, was that something, I think, I think I read that you went as a team, right? Um, at first no, but on, that on your own. Well, okay. Yeah. Just so how, how, how do you really like, I want to go to sub-Saharan Africa. Like how, how does that come about? Yeah. <laughs> or how do you know, where do you start? Like, uh, okay, let me, let me call up the, uh, the embassy or, or the state department. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I originally um, started my programs. I think it was in 2012 in India and I was take my brother lived in India at the time I was taking a trip. I wanted to go for two weeks and I had five or six days where I wanted to use my time in a, in a social impact type of way and work with, with young women through soccer. So that's how it started. And then you build the relationships within the state department. I became a teacher at the state department and I taught about um, sports diplomacy programs for the, the local foreign service officers. So I would, I would teach them while they were here, but meanwhile, you know, whether it was six months, a year, they were all going to go abroad to their posts. So my first time to Africa, a woman who I taught said, you know, I'm going to be going to Botswana, I would love for you to come. And I said, you know, be careful, you know, what you ask for, because I'm the kind of person that will show up on your doorstep. So she went over to Botswana, I built a relationship um, with her, her name was Jackie, and she invited me over to Botswana. And the next thing I know, you know, I'm there um, teaching soccer to young women. And then that kind of snowballed. I loved Africa. I think I just, I love the whole idea of just looking so different from everyone else. And being so different in terms of like my race, my religion, my gender expression, and knowing kind of the impact I could make over there. So Botswana led to uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Cote d'Ivoire led to Niger, and Niger led to Nigeria. So uh, I feel like I'm coming somewhat of an expert of sub-Saharan Africa, and I've just really enjoyed it. That's awesome. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about COVID. Uh, you, you seem quite active though, right? You haven't, I don't, I don't feel like you've been tied down too much. It, it's always seems like you're, you're doing something amazing with your wife, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mar yeah wife. Um, 
Yeah. So it seems like you, you've, you've made the most of, of, of 2020 and the beginning of 2021, anything exciting that you've done over the last year that, um, you know, you didn't let yourself be restricted by the environment. Yeah. I think I've been, you know, super privileged in that sense where I haven't been, um, really restrictive restricted. And I think COVID brought out the fact that sport is so essential for mental health, for physical health. So even through like the deepest times of the pandemic, I could still outside masked um, six foot distance, I could still teach soccer to kids. And they so desperately needed it because they lost usually their team at that point because they couldn't meet as a group. So it reinforced how important sport was in, in, in youth lives. And um, I was still able to do a lot of coaching and it almost like snowballed into my full-time position because speaking engagements kind of dried up and you weren't traveling for those types of things. So I really built an incredible base of clients here in the Washington DC area. And now that I would say uh, more speaking opportunities are, are coming available. Um, I'm going to start teaching the athletic, you know, athlete mindset course. Um, I've been asked to travel to Arizona in December to speak to a school board. So I think um, things will start to really open and I can um, continue to like, you know, get the message out there and really help youth. Well, uh, amazing life, amazing journey that you continue to build upon. So um, one more for raising tomorrow's champions. Uh, I'm going to put you on spot, like favorite, favorite story. If I had to pick one chapter and I told you I was, uh, I was showing my wife and talking to it with my kids yesterday as I was kind of doing some prep work, but what's the one I got to make sure that, um, that I share with them or, or what's, what's your favorite? Yeah. You know, I think chapter six, which is the parenting chapter, which seems somewhat ironic since I don't have any children, but I just think that's a super profound chapter because, you know, Abby Wambach talks about what you should say to your child after a game, right? How many times we all mess it up. Um, we interviewed Alex Morgan's mother. So you get to learn more about Alex Morgan. She was cut from her soccer team. There's, I think leadership is a big one. I think leadership has just been so important within the U S women's national team and so important, um, in life. So I think, I think that's chapter 18. So those are, those are my two favorite chapters I would say. And, and the ones I think worth most reading chapter 19 is leadership. Awesome. So we know you're going to get back on the, uh, on, on the circuit, uh, in the speaking circuit, but, uh, any ideas for a follow-up book or any like personal programs, initiatives outside of, you know, just sport that you're looking to, to dive into. Cause it, it really seems like you just pick something and go with it and, uh, and make sure that you're enjoying it and everybody kind of benefits from it. I think, uh, this summer I'll be doing my first ever raising tomorrow's champion summer camps. So I'll have, you know, 20 to 25 players that I get to work with on the field and off. I think that will be, um, massive. I think, you know, continuing to be an expert and a thought leader within the athlete mindset. So really, I love the concept of using sport as that vehicle to develop like badass, bold human beings. So I think um, the course, I think summer camps and, you know, continue to teach classes online and um, webinar series. You know, I have a lot of ideas and concepts I want to create, but just like the rest of my life, I'm kind of, you know, zigzagging and seeing where this, this road takes me. It's exciting. So no kids yet. Are you content just being a dog mom or? <laughs> yeah, kids in the future over here sleeping and having dreams and <laughs> I, I thought i heard that <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love my dog at the moment i think melody and i are considering starting to have children next year so that will be 
whole nother challenge to take on as both of you guys know. So any, any advice you can send my way. We'll be, we'll be sure to do that for sure. And I just sent you my daughter's, uh, uh, Instagram thing. So you can, uh, you can follow up on that. Uh, Joanna Lohman, thank you so much for joining us, uh, a little over a year ago in New York and certainly for joining us today, Kyle, uh, did we learn anything today? I learned, learned a lot. This was, this was great. I think this is, this is yet another of those. We could go on for another three hours. So we'll have to definitely find time, Joanna, to, to have you back and continue awesome. the conversation. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. I think we need, I think we need to do some like, you know, round table type things too, because there's so many different voices and perspectives we can bring in, but certainly awesome. Joanna Lohman, author Raising Tomorrow's Champions, uh, joined us at the 2019 kickoff of the Outside Game rebrand. Uh, so I, I think this worked well. We can bring some of these newer people on. Joanna uh, really paved the way for that once again. So Kyle Bunch, Don Poe, that's Joanna Lohman. Uh, this is the Outside Game OGs. We'll talk to you soon.